Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Let's go to Roman, uh, Romans, <laughs> Revelation, chapters 15 and 16 this morning. We're going to look at seven angels, seven plagues, and seven bowls of God's wrath. Now, today's passage brings to the end God's judgment. And while we will see next week in the last two chapters, chapter 17 and 18, this judgment laid out in more detail, Today we're going to overview it and see it introduced. When the seventh trumpet sounded, if you remember back in chapter 11, there was no woe nor a plague that occurred with it. So the seventh trumpet opened up into the seven bold judgments. But before we got to them, we saw an interlude in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And so we really pick up today where verse 14 of chapter 11 left off. But I want to remind you of where it is that we've come through those few chapters. At verse 15 of chapter 11, right after the seventh trumpet sounded and the third woe was about to come, Instead of the woe, we see a hymn of thanksgiving and a celebration uh, of victory. And we talked about how that was the midpoint of the whole book and how in the literature of that century, it was a writing technique to bring hope to the reader that right in the midst, the declaration of victory of the end of all things was given. And that's what we saw in verses 15 to 19, a, a celebration of God's victory. And though it hadn't been fulfilled completely yet, it was certain because of that word. And so we saw that when we moved into chapter 12, we saw the three wars of heaven where we're introduced to the dragon, who is Satan. And we see Satan loses, Satan loses, and Satan is thrown to the earth, a, a loser. And that's who he is. When we come to chapter 13, because of his losing record, he summons forth the beast from the sea, who we come to know as the false Christ or the Antichrist. And that beast from the sea mimics the work of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ to try and draw all people to come and to worship him. When that doesn't work as effectively, we see the second beast, the beast of the land, who becomes the false prophet, who comes and he does these great signs and many wonders and awes and wows people and tries to allure them to worship the first beast. And both of those, beast one and two, are demanding worship. They're deceiving people and they're persecuting the redeemed of God. But when we come to chapter 14, God remains unmoved. And there is a declaration of victory of the redeemed throughout chapter 14. And so we have this word of hope. And what we've seen from chapter 6, where, begin, where the seals are opened and the judgment begins, is this acceleration and this progress towards ultimate final judgment. But throughout it, God has declared his victory. And that's what he's telling us in chapter 14. And so today when we come to chapter 15, we pick up with the seven bold judgments and we see here the picking up from chapter 11, verse 14. And here's what I want you to see today in these two chapters. 
that God's judgment displays his perfect justice to call all people to trust his perfect love in Jesus Christ. God's judgment displays his perfect justice to call all people to trust his perfect love in Jesus Christ. And so let's walk through these two chapters today. I'm not going to be able to read the whole text for, uh, in consideration of our time, but I do want to read the first verse of chapter 15 to begin our message. Revelation 15.1 says this, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Revelation 15 is the preparation for the final judgment. John sees another sign in heaven. It's seven angels with seven plagues. And he has a vision of heaven's throne room again and, and, and with, uh, with all who have conquered the beast uh, being around in it. And so there is this preparation for celebration, if you will, transpiring in heaven. And they're, they're holding harps and they're getting ready to sing. It says the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. But don't miss this, friends. Here's what I want you to see at the beginning of chapter 15. The great tribulation is at its peak at this point. This is the darkest hour in all of human history. And all of heaven is preparing to sing. Grab hold of this image of what's transpiring in heaven before you dare to perceive what is taking place on earth. I remember uh, I was leading a pastor's conference one time in Guatemala 10, 12 years ago. And, and uh, that evening we were going to one of their church services that they were going to host there. So we brought the whole team in. And um, if you've ever been to a church in Central America, the walls are typically cinder block on the side. The roof is um, metal like exposed metal with no insulation under it, typically, not always, but typically, and the floor is tile. To say that the room is acoustically alive is a gross understatement. But just in case someone's not going to be able to hear in the back, their speakers are roughly the size of me. They're massive. And when it says one, two, three, four, they don't even bother with it on the volume. They throw it all the way to 10 and that's where you begin. And I mean, it is on from the moment they start to the moment they finish. And so we, we were preparing ourselves for this as, as, as gringos who were entering in and not you know fully aware of the vibe yet. And across the front of the altar, they had a banister where they probably had 10 or 12 tambourines hanging. And I went, oh, that's so cool. It's like anybody that wants to can come up and get a tambourine. So a few minutes later when the service started, anybody that wanted to came up and got a tambourine. And so tambourines are all over with this deafening kadoon, 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 blaring from the front. And there are some people who have better rhythm than others. I'll leave it at that. When I hear what is transpiring here, I hear the band of heaven tuning up for a celebration of victory. Their song, verses three and four, declares the great and mighty power of God, that he is just and he is true in all of his way. 
And then it declares a powerful question at the first of verse four, says this, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Really, the question is more of a statement, but, but it makes the declaration of by, by such power displayed, God, who, who could possibly not worship you? We see following the question, three qualities of God's character set forth for all to worship him. First of all, he and he alone is holy and worthy of worship. Secondly, all nations will come and worship him. And third, his righteous deeds have been revealed that demonstrate his worthiness of worship. The song is one of acclamation of the mighty works of God. They are singing prophetic words of the victory that is not yet, but is as certain as any certainty could be. And the one of whom they sing is like no other, who draws people from every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people to worship at his throne. You see, friends, God has displayed his righteous deeds for all to see and to know that he is God. And even the song of heaven is an appeal for all to trust and to follow God. John sees the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven. And this tent of witness is a reference to the Exodus as the tabernacle and later the temple will become known by this title. It is a witness to testify to the holiness of God and to the righteousness of God and even the justice of God. And from that sanctuary, we see seven angels with the seven plagues come forth. The way that they are attired emphasizes the righteousness of the throne that they represent. And it tells us that one of the four living creatures who inhabits the throne of God gave seven angels each a bowl full of God's wrath. In chapter 5, verse 8, these bowls are referred to as the golden bowls because they were the bowls that carried the prayers of the saints. And so what we are seeing here is the participation of the redeemed in heaven with God even in the execution of his judgment. These bowls are what are known as libation bowls, which carry wine in them, and wine would often be served in them. They look uh, not too unlike what, our, what we would call queso bowls, the little black skillets. They're not much larger than that and, and shaped a little different, but roughly that size. And they were bowls that wine would be served out of. But in these libation bowls, they were carrying from heaven the wine of God's wrath that had been produced in chapter 14 from from the harvest of the earth. We saw where the angel swung the sickle and harvested the grapes and those grapes were thrown into the wine press of God outside the city and stomped and trampled there and then left to ferment and now the wrath of God or wine of God's wrath had been made. It was being served so that the completion and the full pouring out by seven, the number of perfection and completion Represents. You see, all of heaven here, friends, is filled with the smoke from God's glory and awaits the plagues to be finished. Revelation 15 gives us insight into heaven to see how it is that God and his saints are preparing for the end. We, we're constantly given these insights by God and we get to see not only the end, but we get to see how it is that God in heaven is preparing for the end. And what is it that we see taking place in heaven to prepare for all that will transpire on earth? They're preparing to sing praise and thanksgiving. 
Friends, what we're seeing here is the immovability of God in his sovereign nature. He's not anxious. He's not unnerved. He's not thwarted in any way to any extent. He is sovereign over all. But it does cause us to ask, how could all of heaven be preparing to sing at such a dark moment in history? Well, Revelation, first of all, gives us an opportunity to respond. But in addition, we've answered this question regarding judgment and plagues over the last number of chapters. But let me summarize it here with one scholar's statement that simply says this, that the manifestation of God's justice saves his people and wins him praise. This is how. When justice is done, the just rejoice. When justice is done, the wicked rebel. That's what we see, friends. And in this chapter, there is an invitation by the manifestation of God's justice for all to come and worship him. Just as the saints in heaven pray for God to vindicate his name in Revelation 6, so it is that all of God's people take comfort in knowing that he will perfectly judge all unrighteousness. What kind of God would he be? if he just let wickedness slide. He would not be a righteous and holy judge. He would not be a righteous and a holy God. You see, God's justice displayed in saving his people on the cross of Jesus Christ is an invitation for all who will hear and believe to be saved from judgment by his perfect love. And here we see the first of only two responses to God's judgment. Response number one is this. Christ followers cultivate a heart to trust God's justice because we've been redeemed by his love. We cultivate a heart to trust God's justice because we've been redeemed by his love. We recognize that the one who is speaking from the beginning, whose revelation is being given to us, is the lamb who is worthy. It is the lamb who activates the worship of all of heaven because he was slain and he ransomed people for God. And he is the lamb who is worthy to take and open the seals to judge all earth dwellers who have rejected God in his Love. Friends, we need to hear this message today because even in many of the churches today, we've pitted God's love against God's justice as if you can pick and choose which one you prefer, but you cannot because they are inseparable. God is one and his love is as equally manifested and displayed in glorious splendor through his justice as his justice is through his love. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ tells us. There's no escape from this. And as his followers, we rest in God's perfect justice because we've been redeemed by his perfect love. We confess God's perfect love that is displayed on the cross as the execution of his perfect justice that God put forth Jesus Christ as a propitiation for sin. That's a payment in our place for what was ours that we did not have to endure because of him. But it is also a perfect and a true statement about what sin really is. 
When you look at the most unjust act in all of human history that shall ever occur, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, what you see is how truly heinous sin is. And not just any sin, your sin and my sin and our sin. That Jesus had to die because he was the only perfect lamb of God. Any of us, yea, all of us could have died the same death the day Jesus died that death. But none of it would have mattered. It's like paying the national debt with a penny. It doesn't make a difference. But Jesus made the difference once for all, the scripture says, who would look to him and be saved. He would receive and redeem. This is the confession that we make when we look on the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the display of God's perfect love. It is the execution of his perfect justice. You see, we heed the call of God to cultivate our heart to trust his love. We cultivate our heart to trust him when we hear his word that calls us to believe in him and it tells us of his mighty deeds and it displays those deeds in glorious splendor. We say yes, Lord, to his word. We cultivate a heart to trust the Lord Jesus when we hear the testimony of the saints, yea, even under the altar of heaven, but even upon the earth, that he is worthy of all glory and praise and that their prayers for vindication of God's holy name will be heard and will be fulfilled. We cultivate a heart to trust the Lord when we heed his call for faith as our own source for strength to endure persecution. Instead of being consumed by fear at what might be pending or threatening, but rather to rest and trust in him. We cultivate a heart to trust when we learn to love not our own life, even unto death, as we daily follow Jesus living as living sacrifices. We cultivate a heart to trust Jesus when we take comfort in the security of our salvation in Jesus, And we take the courage from him alone by his strength to bear a faithful witness to his name in the world, regardless of what it costs us. We cultivate a heart to trust God when we believe to repent of sin and obey his command. And so I ask the question, have you believed in God's mighty work of justice and love on the cross of Jesus Christ? Have you looked on the cross to recognize what God has done for you and say, yes, Lord, to repent of your sin, to trust in him, receive his forgiveness and cleansing and walk by faith and obedience to him. You see, Revelation 15 depicts for us the buildup of the outpouring of God's wrath that will come in chapter 16. This is the staging event, if you will, where everything is being assembled and prepared for the execution of judgment. And we see in chapter 15 the mounting tension and it increases in magnitude of the display of God's wrath that will be revealed in chapter 16. Go there with me to verse one and allow me to read that for us as well as we move there. John writes, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. 
A loud voice from the temple tells the angels to go pour out the wrath of God upon the earth. And so the first angel pours out their bowl and it tells us that a harmful and painful sores begin to appear on the people upon whom the mark of the beast was resting. And then the second angel pours out the bowl of his wrath into the sea and it tells us that it becomes like the blood of a corpse, blood already coagulated, blood already stenchful and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel pours out his bowl of wrath into the rivers and the springs of water and they all become blood. And after the third bowl, it tells us, another angel cries out to the Lord and declares that God is just and holy in giving to those who shed the blood of the saints and the prophets what they deserved. And heaven responds with the chorus of agreement that the Lord God Almighty is true, that the Lord God Almighty is is just. Friends, I want to point something out to you in this third series of judgments known as the bold judgments. We've talked about this briefly in the first two, but when the seals were open, there were seven seals. And when we came to the seventh seal, it got opened and introduced us to the seven trumpet judgments. When the seven trumpet judgments uh, were inflicted, we saw that a third of creation died. A third of the things of the sea died. There was a third. There was a a measure, but not a completeness. By the time we come to the uh, seven bold judgments, now we are seeing the completeness. There's nothing remaining. Everything is being taken in the judgment. So we're seeing how the advancement of God's judgment is also increasing in its scope and in its magnitude. Look with me at the fourth angel who pours their bowl on the sun and it tells us that people were scorched with fire. Verse 9 And it's interesting how they respond to this. Look at verse nine. It says, they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So recognize this. They knew where the plagues came from. They knew who was God over the plagues. And yet they cursed him. They cursed him and did not. Repent. They willfully hardened themselves to curse his name. Next, we see that the fifth angel, verse 10, pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom, and they are plunged into darkness. It tells us that the people of the earth gnawed their own tongues, and again, they cursed God for their pain, but they did not repent. When the sixth angel pours forth his bowl, the river Euphrates is dried up to prepare for the kings of the east to attack. And it leaves the people vulnerable and completely exposed. The kings of the east is a representation for the enemies of God's people who will come. They're being released, it tells us. And then it says that John saw from the mouth of the dragon, of the beast, and the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. And it tells us that these are demonic spirits who perform signs and they go about to assemble the kings of the earth for battle against God. So we're seeing hell unleashed literally here, friends. This is not just a bad day. This is the bad day. 
and all of hell is coming out and joining forces and gaining steam to muster its forces against God and they're being assembled in a place called Armageddon. We see that Satan is exercising his every influence that's fathomable in order to summon every power imaginable to fight against God. But God is not moved. God is not moved. Verse 15 of chapter 16 jolts us just a little bit. There's a parenthesis that John writes at this point. He says this, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. You see, John inserts this parenthesis because he's giving us the central spiritual message of this passage. He's keeping us focused on ultimate reality. You see, all of the kings that are gathering and the unfathomable amount of power and force upon this earth that is assembling itself against God is not causing him to twiddle his thumbs or in any way to quiver in his spirit. He's not worried about them. They are not a demonstration of threat against him. And John is telling us in verse 15 that in no way, shape, form, or manner should they define ultimate reality for us because the ultimate reality for the followers of Jesus Christ is his return and his ultimate victory at that moment. And this is the event which is the focus of the expectation of the saints. We're not impressed by the world's powers because we're focused on the sovereign one who is already victorious. His interruption inserts a true perspective for us to focus on. You see, we know that the Lord will come like a thief in the night because he said he would come like a thief in the night. And so Christ followers, we guard our heart that we do not live in fear and anxiety from the kings of the world that are summoned by Satan himself that threaten us, that attack us, or that any measure try to thwart God's will for us. And when we do, it's because we become more consumed about what's going on on earth than what's transpiring in heaven. And our rightful response is to repent and refocus on the one who is our ultimate reality. Not only that, do we not live in fear and anxiety, but we do not live asleep on this earth. We do not look at all things in life and claim peace and security as the psalmist cries. Why? Because we know this world is not our ultimate home and the way we live in this world is a practical manner of setting our heart on eternity in all things. And so our peace and security is not in this world, but it's in eternity with God. And so John strikes the chord of the heart to focus on spiritual diligence, for us to live with urgency and priority in this life about the ultimate reality of Jesus' return and to be focused on what he's commissioned and commanded us to do. The time is limited, friends, and it's ending faster than anyone predicted. We live here to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, even above our own comforts, above our own pleasures, and yea, even above our own personal security. Christ followers live ready at all times for his return at any moment because Jesus said for us to live this way in Matthew 24, 
verse 43. And then in verse 17 of chapter 16, we see the seventh angel pour out his bowl and immediately a loud voice from heaven declares, it is done, it is done. And we hear that it is finished of the cross of Jesus Christ declared from heaven in the it is done about the judgment of God upon the earth. You see, what is announced in the seventh bowl plague is described in detail in chapter 17 and 18, and we'll entertain that next week. But these plagues are God's answer to Satan's greatest effort to frustrate his divine rule. They're a great display of phenomena that has manifested his divine power and glory in the last judgment. And then John records an ominous statement in verse 18. Look at this statement. It is of supreme encouragement for God's people when he says, God remembered Babylon. God remembered Babylon. So often in the scriptures, we see God remembers his people. And this is no different, friend, but Babylon is not the people of God. Babylon is the representation of all of the worldly powers and systems that oppose God. It reminds us as his people that God's not forgotten about his people. He's given first priority to them. He will not allow evil to go unpunished, but he remembers, he remembers and when I was a kid, every Wednesday night when we got home from church was a special moment between father and son with Lane and my dad. It was always a, a moment I remembered. It made an impression, you might say. And really the problem was when you get to the root of it is the teachers that I were in the class from on, on Wednesday night just didn't understand, you know, me. And so they would have issues with me. And those issues would make their way back to my father and then he had an issue with me. And I remember on one Wednesday night, we got out of the car, it was my older sister, my older brother, myself, and my mom and dad, and we're standing there on the front porch as my dad opens the screen and he's unlocking the door to go in. And just before the door opens, and we haven't mentioned it at all, my brother says, hey, daddy, don't forget, you promised Lane a spanking when we got home tonight. <laughs> and we got to stick together, brother. Bros no more. God remembered Babylon. He doesn't forget his people. You see, Babylon is destroyed by being made to drain the cup of God's wrath so that there becomes a complete collapse of human civilization. And it tells us one last time, great hailstones fall from heaven, more than a hundred pounds each. Can you imagine? And they fall in judgment, but this time people curse God. You see, God warns people through judgment and he gives every opportunity to repent, but they only curse him. I want to make note of three important aspects of judgment from this last scene that we see. And it's really a summary of all that we've seen from chapter 6 through chapter 16. The first note that I point out for us is this, to understand that God's judgment accelerates and intensifies as it advances so that the end arrives more suddenly than expected. That's why God says, I come like a thief in the night. 
because no one expected it when it happened. It was earlier than we thought it would arrive because it was accelerating and intensifying the whole time it was advancing. The second important aspect of judgment that I point out for us is this, the completeness in this last series of bold judgments. There's not going to be another round. This is the proverbial strike three, if you will, of judgments. The third series of judgments. This is the final one. That's why heaven declared it is done where every living thing dies. And then third, through it all, God's people are called to by God himself to stay focused on what's really important. May I walk us through this, the last few chapters, and remind us. Chapter 13, verse 10, right in the middle of being introduced to the dragon and the two beasts, there is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Just a very simple, straightforward sentence. It says, here is a call for the faith and the endurance of the saints. You know what that is? That's God saying, listen, right here, look at me. I got you. Trust me. He does it again in chapter 14 and verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. You see, he's, he's telling us and keeping us focused on what's going on so that we don't get distracted by what's transpiring around. And he's telling us that Christ followers endure through everything as we live ready for his return by staying focused on him, not becoming consumed by the things of this world. You see, through it all, God speaks to his people like a loving father to give comfort and courage that provides security and strength in the midst of trusting him. And we know his voice because we've learned the voice of the great shepherd on this earth and we've heard and we've hearkened our ear to listen to him and to trust him because we know that he leads us to green pastures. He leads us to living water and where he calls to us, he will never mislead us. And so right in the midst of the darkest times, the voice of God says, here is a call for the faith and the endurance of the saints. Child of God, hear his voice. You can trust him. And when all hell is being unleashed, God's voice is as calm and as soothing as any. Here is a call for the faith and the endurance of the saints. Don't get distracted by all that. You stay focused right here on me. I'm gonna walk you right through it. Just like I did Christ. Just like I will for you. You see, the question that was posed back in chapter 15, I think it's worth our consideration again because we, we've seen over the last 10 chapters people who refuse to glorify God's name. Remember that question? It was more of a declaration when it said, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? I mean, who could see all the mighty deeds of God and still refuse and reject him? But what is shocking about this chapter is the way that unrepentant humanity reacts to the wrath of God. 
In spite of the judgments, they refuse to change their thinking. In spite of the judgment, they refuse to alter their lifestyles. They never accept responsibility for their own sinfulness, but they only curse and blaspheme God instead, daring him for why he would believe he was anyone to judge sin. And in spite of their severe suffering, symbolized by the very gnawing of their own tongues, there's not even a hint of humility, much less repentance or submission in worship. And here, friends, we see the second of only two responses to God's judgment. And it is this. The heart that hardens towards God's call to trust and repent rejects Jesus all the way to eternal damnation. The heart that hardens towards God's call to trust and repent rejects Jesus all the way to eternal damnation. Would you consider briefly just the progression of a hardening heart to the invitation of God? Chapter six, verse 16, in the seven sealed judgments, the people are under severe and they're uh, uh, scared and, and fearful and they're running into the mountains and they're saying to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and kill us. We are afraid of what is coming, but they cannot die by natural calamity. In chapter 9, verse 6, the seven trumpet judgments, it says that they become so tormented that they seek death to escape their torment, but death does not find them. Death flees from them. By the end of the seven trumpet judgments, we see that the rest of mankind who has not been killed by the plagues refused to repent and were hardened even further towards God. Chapter 9, verse 20. When we get to chapter 11, their hearts have become so hardened towards God that they began to rejoice in the public celebration over the death of two witnesses. Chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. There are days of celebration because the voice of prophecy from God that's telling them of his judgment and inviting them to repent is dead. So when we come to the two bold judgments, or excuse me, when we come to the bold judgments, their hardness of heart continues against God so that they, verse nine, curse him. Verse 11, they curse him. Verse 21, they curse him repeatedly to the very end. Do you remember as you study Revelation what we said early on, what repetition means? And anytime something in threes occurs, it's the completeness of that. This is the completeness of their cursing God. They cursed him, they cursed him, they cursed him. That's all they could do. You see, God is merciful in judging the world. God is loving to show how futile and vain and broken are the false religions and the selfish pursuits and the proud imaginings. These are, these are the same people, very likely, who saw in God's judgment a third of the earth die. Like that. Didn't touch me. You ever thought that? Well, I must be somebody special. It didn't affect me. You see, God is proving to humanity that there are only two possibilities to repent and worship God or to persist in rebellion and face unavoidable judgment. And these bowls of wrath will prove that the false gods will never deliver them from the true God. And this progression of a hardening heart reveals the true condition of a person's heart towards God in judgment ultimately, but hear me, for us today in conviction immediately. 
This is what I want you to hear today, friends. What I mean to say to each one of us is this, the response of your heart to God's conviction today foreshadows your response to him in the day of judgment. You don't know the day or the hour, but you know this, it will arrive more suddenly than you could dare imagine. You will not be expecting it unless you're living ready for it. And the only way to live ready for it is to be trusting in Christ and following him. Friends, we harden our heart to reject God every time we dismiss, every time we neglect, every time we ignore his call to believe and repent by looking to other created things for help and salvation. My point to you today is that the progression of a hardening heart isn't just simply something someone else goes through and experiences all at once in the immediacy of a moment. It's made in the little decisions each day when we walk of whether we will look to Christ and trust him or whether we will dismiss, neglect, or reject what he has to say to us and walk our own way. You can't walk in sin in this world and believe you will gain heaven in the other you can't refuse to live a life of humility and repentance to Jesus Christ now and to think you're going to gain the full reward that he offers you will not be ready for the day of judgment if you're not walking in readiness by humility and repentance and the receiving of his forgiveness today You say, but pastor, I made a decision when I was young or I made a decision some time ago in the past. Listen to me, friends. I'm not negating your decision, but I am calling into question what it was you actually decided if that decision didn't lead you into a daily walk with Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit convicting you regarding sin, regarding righteousness, regarding judgment, as the scripture teaches And if you're not walking and living by the Spirit today, friends, you're walking in the progression of a hardening heart away from God. That's not what I'm telling you. That's what the Scriptures are telling you. And if that doesn't send chills down your spine, I'm not even sure you're alive. You know, water both softens and hardens the ground. When it first falls, it loosens the ground to be receptive. If you, like me, have had to start mowing already this year, you probably mowed on some pretty soft ground recently because there's been a lot of water on it. But wait till July. You won't be able to put a shovel in the ground. It'll become so dry and hard. That's what it does. When it first falls, the water loosens the ground to be receptive. But if it's left to dry, it hardens even more than before. You see, friends, when the gospel is preached and God's call for faith and repentance goes forth, it's the rain of his living water poured down upon your heart. You're ready to respond. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10 tells us. But when you persist to put off until another time, I'll look at it tomorrow morning, later this afternoon, next week. That water that softened at first will only harden and make more dense the dirt of your heart. And I also find this interesting in this area that if you notice that when the ground hardens after a good rain and then it begins to dry, all of a sudden rocks appear where they weren't before. Have you noticed that? 
Come mow my yard. I find new ones the first few mows every year. Why? Because once the water softens and then begins to dry and the ground compacts a little more, it just begins to push all the hardness to the top of the rocks. And that's why rocks come to the surface in our area. It's no different in your spiritual life, friends, that the more you say no, the more you dismiss the work of the Spirit and His conviction in your heart, the more the water of God's Word is just settling into you and you're saying no, no, no. You're searing the voice of Holy Spirit in you as you say not now, not yet, not when. And all of the hardness, the anxiety you've had with God and the anxiousness and the tumultuousness, the things about God's word you don't like, those things just all kind of come up. And you go, you know, I, God, maybe I'd say yes if this weren't true or if that were true or if this happened or if that happened. God just needs to do a little more to prove me. No, friends, the scripture says in Hebrews, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today is the day of salvation. What are you waiting on? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sin. Receive his forgiveness and cleansing for your soul. Worship the Lord Jesus and walk by the power of his spirit in you. Love not your life even unto death to live as a living sacrifice now. Because the Lord Jesus is filling you by his spirit to walk with that kind of power. Read and know his word and hide it in your heart that you might not sin against him. Fellowship with the saints and God's people that they might encourage you not to be hardened, but to be strengthened to endure. To live a life of humility and repentance, receiving the strength and the power and the filling of God's spirit. So not to be hardened against God. Live ready. For the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. Two responses. Have I believed in God's mighty work of justice and love on the cross of Jesus to repent and follow him? Have you? Response number two. Am I persisting in resistance to question God's justice and reject his love for me in Jesus Christ? Here's the one reality of the two responses. To deny God's justice for your life is to reject his love in Christ. God's judgment displays his perfect justice to call all people to trust his perfect love in Jesus Christ.